You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast presented by Sapphire Legal. Workplace Perspective is a regular podcast series for employers and employees focusing on education, training, and the law to help organizations of all sizes develop and maintain successful workplace relationships. The opinions expressed by guests on Workplace Perspective do not necessarily reflect those of Sapphire Legal or its attorneys and should not be considered legal advice. And now, here's your host, founder and principal attorney at Sapphire Legal, Teresa McQueen. Thank you, James, and welcome everyone to Workplace Perspective, where we are striving to raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Today, we're talking with author, speaker, trainer, Michelle Silverthorne. Michelle helps employers and employees change their workplace dynamic by creating authentic diversity. On today's episode, Michelle will be talking with us about how to address microaggressions in the workplace. It's going to be a great show. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The opinions expressed by guests on Workplace Perspective do not necessarily reflect those of Sapphire Legal or its attorneys and should not be considered legal advice. You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast presented by Sapphire Legal. Welcome back to our listeners and welcome to Workplace Perspective, Michelle Silverthorne. Thank you so much, Teresa, for having me here. I'm looking forward to having a conversation with you. Well, we're excited to have you on the show. I'm I'm really excited to talk about this topic. Um, But before we get started, I don't want to forget, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. So I'm Michelle Silverthorne. I am the founder and CEO of Inclusion Nation. I am a speaker. I'm an author. I am a consultant. I used to travel around the country and speak to many different companies and do trainings and workshops on anti-racism, bias, inclusion, authenticity, belonging, really developing spaces where people are allowed to bring their authentic selves and their authentic values to work and all of the many, many, many steps required to restructure workplace cultures to get there. Um, And now I do it from my home. I live in Michigan and I get to do all of this right now from behind a Zoom screen until the world shifts yet again. (laughs) And we're all looking forward to that. I'm, I'm with you on that one especially as we come up on this COVID anniversary. Well, I'm, we certainly, the workplace can certainly benefit from your perspective as far as I'm concerned. I, this topic, Mike Gerson's, I have to tell you, so I really don't know when it happened, but all of a sudden, just like in one day, not too long ago, I got three calls from clients saying, you know, asking about microaggressions and what do you know about this? And do you do training on this? And how do we handle it? And then like, bam, it was everywhere. Yes. It was like every time I turned around, somebody was talking about it or asking, it was in casual conversation. Mm-hmm. And I kind of was like, well, yeah, I don't know. Mm. And I thought I got to look this up. I don't know what I'm talking about here. So everywhere I turn. So I want to know from your, what are microaggressions? Right. What are we talking about? I can happy to talk about it like all day. So, you know, from <laughs> the, um, it, it's not a new term. I mean, I think, um, Professor Sue, who wrote the book about microaggressions, wrote this book in 97, if I can recall, or an article. I'm trying to think of how long ago it did that. But like with a lot of things, you know, like with phrases like BIPOC or people of color or anti-racism, things come and go and words come and go. And then we start using them more and more. But the actual act of microaggressions isn't anything new. Anyone who has been a marginalized minority in the workplace can tell you that. We know what it feels like and what it sounds like. And so those who are listening who don't know what the definition is, 
They are the verbal slights, the insults, the indignities, the denigrating messages that are directed toward an individual because of their group membership. And they often don't rise, though I think that they should still rise to the levels of what we call racism or harassment in the workplace, right? So they don't rise to the level of legal liability. And on the other hand, they are enough to make people want to leave their workplaces. Because what microaggressions tell you, and I can give you some examples, is that over and over and over again, you don't belong here that this is not the space for you. This is not the place for you. This culture does not include you. It does not welcome you. And you are being asked to leave. And I call it the death by a thousand cuts because that is what it so often feels like. If you are someone who has experienced them, I know a lot of people listening have, it is the cut by cut by cut by cut by cut by cut. And then if you leave, you are told, well, yeah, they couldn't cut it here. She didn't want it enough to stay. And that, I think, is really when we were talking about microaggressions, those are the challenges we have to acknowledge and work with. And it's interesting because when, you know, when I started to hear it, my thought, my legal brain just went to, okay, abusive conduct. Mm -hmm. So in California, abusive conduct is those sorts of things. The, the things that cumulatively, you know, cause a workplace to become toxic. Right. or to become, you know, a hostile work environment, which is legally actionable if it's based on a protected classification. Mm -hmm. And in my head, when I do trainings about sexual harassment, we talk about abusive conduct, and I talk about incivility. I talk about unprofessionalism because that abusive conduct in my mind, it's what you're talking about. And mm -hmm. it's, it's microaggressions, right? right. And it's, it's that uncivil behavior that doesn't quite rise to the level, but if left unchecked, right. typically does, right? It typically goes into something that would be legally actionable. You know, even, even if it stays low level, right? So what usually happens is the thing with reporting behavior in the workplace, right? Reporting it into some kind of, you know, I'm a lawyer, I haven't practiced employment law, but whenever you report something to legal formality, your name goes in a book and the investigation happens. And now you people know that you said something, even though everyone said it's confidential, right? And then for a lot of people in the workplace, they don't feel like they have the power in the workplace to even report these things. And so it's exactly what you said, you know, the behavior and the actions, how is it that, you know, how can we train people to say, yeah, well, if she had a problem with it, she could have gone and reported it. She couldn't have, right? Because she wants to work here too. And so we have to get to that point where it's not about, what are we able to, I mean, I'd love if there were systems and mechanisms in all organizations that would allow us to effectively address microaggressions without alienating the person who said it or treating the person who said it as a pariah, which often happens. But I don't think we're there yet. And I do think that some of the successful organizations who are addressing microaggressions, who have things that it's not just about the anonymous reporting line. It's also about the manager and the team leader who is able to, you can go to them directly and talk about it. Have they created a workplace where someone says the wrong thing? And if someone says the right thing, you have a space of learning and trust. And I think when you talk about exactly what you just said, talking about culture and the cultures that we create, that trust and that, that, that openness has to be a part of it. Yeah, I agree. I think that, um, you know, this idea that, and I do see it shifting. I do think it's shifting. If you just look at, in particular, sexual harassment in particular, right? Things have definitely changed. If you look mm -hmm. at a progression, we've gone from, in not a relatively short amount of time, but we have transitioned from always viewing the incident 
from the victim's perspective, Anita Hill, right? Um, Maggie Kim. So as you go through these things, but it's transitioned quickly because now we're starting to refer to them. The Weinstein thing was a turning point because that was where that was a turning point because that was looking at it from a public perspective from the the uh, the accused, right? The aggressor in that instance, but identi identifying the person, but also the organization, mm -hmm. because after that, they started looking at organizations. All of a sudden it became what happened at FEMA and right. what happened right. at, you know, so it's changed. I think that has changed. And what I completely agree with, you're talking about this idea that we have to start looking at those that are initiating the behavior, not those that are impacted by the behavior. Right. Right. I love that. I mean, I love that. One of the things I love to talk about um, is intent versus impact, right? A lot of us who do this work talk about intent versus impact. And people always tell me, well, Michelle, they were so well-intentioned. They didn't mean it that way. You have to look at their heart. And I'm like, I can't see it. Y'all, I can't see their heart. I can see what they did. I can see the actions that they did. I can see the actions that they repeated over and over and over again. I can see, and I, gosh, I listened, I heard so many tearful stories last year. You know, the months after George Floyd, we had so many listening sessions with black employees and the pain and the hurt and the exclusion is absolutely real. And if we continually say, you know, well, it's just one bad egg or it's just one person. And just like you said, if we're not willing to look at the systems that allow for it and not just in how do we support this person, and allow these people to stay, but also what about our systems encourage this kind of behavior? What about how we assign work and what about how we work in teams? What about that work and what about that behavior allows this behavior to continue? And it's really that harder, deeper cultural evaluation as we talk about how things have evolved. That's part of it. And it doesn't have to be here is this flagrant violation, right? Let's just really think about from a person's perspective, are they allowed to succeed and belong here too? So why don't you tell our listeners, just give us an example of something that would be considered a scenario for a microaggression. Oh my goodness. Oh my gosh. I could talk about, so let's do statements because those are the easiest ones to do, right? And they're great stories to tell, right? So, um, oh wow, your hair looks so ethnic and they reach out and they pat my hair like I'm some sort of pet or someone's property. Or you hear someone say, oh, oh, your kids, what are they? And my kids are biracial. I'm like, what, what are they? What do you mean by that? Um, or, oh, you know, I'm sorry, I'm looking for the manager. They're supposed to be sitting here. And I'm the black woman manager sitting in my own office and I'm at my desk. And then it keeps going, right? You're the woman in the meeting and you and people say, oh, oh, you know, Shirley's gonna take the notes. And the assumption is made that Shirley takes the notes because she is the woman in the meeting. The assumption is also made that Shirley is the one who um, sets all the meetings up. She's the one who plans the dinners. She's the one who organizes the Zoom calls, even though she is of equal rank to every single person in that room. Or, I mean, we're both lawyers, right? The times when someone, especially lawyers of color, are taken on pitch teams and taken on pitch teams and then they don't get access to the actual work. And then they're told, oh, you just weren't the right fit for this project. But they were the right fit for the pitch, right? So what exactly changed? And then as you think about what's happened with women in the workplace since COVID struck and how many of us have lost our jobs and how many of us have stayed home with our children and how many of us have not even been able to stay home with children or how many of us are living alone and being assumed that, well, they can't handle this work. 
And you think about statements that are said, oh, yeah, well, you know, she's not going to be able to come in today because, you know, obviously, you know, she has to watch her kids. Or when they go into an interview and they ask you, um, so who's going to watch your kids while you're working? But the men don't get that question. And so it's those those things, those actions, those individual again and again, and you hear them and you hear them and you hear them. And then there is the that statements, but then there's also like the socialization. Because the socialization is a huge part of the workplace, right? I don't care about what friends you have at work. But you do notice when people don't look at you in the eye. You do notice when they move to a different space so they're not next to you. And it, you do notice when partners, for example, will walk past your office, but walk right into the office of the white male associate sitting two doors down from you. And so, again, you can't, I mean, maybe those are actionable. Maybe there are states that say all of those, if you put it all together, I can put forward an abusive work. But honestly, for a lot of people, it is just exhausting. And it is exhausting again and again and again. And then, you know, what do you do? Do you stay? Do you leave? What What is the solution? And that is what microaggressions feels like. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting because I think most people, you know, if you, if you do belong to a minority uh, in whatever, you know, right in the middle of it, right on the fringe of it, You've seen those things and experienced those things in the workplace. I think, you know, most people can relate to that. I can relate to that as a female attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, you do, you do see things. And through my well, career. Don't you mean that you're the clerk, though? I don't know why you think you're the attorney, because aren't you, aren't you the secretary? Aren't you the court clerk sitting right here? I'm so surprised to hear that. Paralegal. I was, <laughs> yeah. you know. But, you know, and so you think about those things and I had wonderful partners in my law practice and I would use that, you know, I would use my older senior partner who was a great guy. I would check that. He was my check. So Mm -hmm. I'd be like, well, is this what I, because I don't look for those. I try to just go do my job and be who I am and, you know, and I know not everybody has that ability. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, but every now and again, I'd stop and think, okay, was that what I thought it was? Does that yeah. become I'm a woman or because this person has an issue? And, you know, sometimes you go, well, no, I, I don't know if I would look at it that way. Of course, you could, you know, it's how you take it. But I, I would, t- you know, what about this perspective? Mm-hmm. It was great to get his perspective. And sometimes you'd go, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's because you're a woman. That's that's oh, right. Yeah, you're a woman. But I'd be mindful of, I remember walking into court, we, our, one of our first big cases, and my responsibility is second chair. Every second chair has this responsibility. The boxes. The boxes are my responsibility. As, and the one thing I said when we walked in the court, I said, I am not carrying your briefcase. <laughs> I've got my own. Because <laughs> you worry about, you don't want to be looking like the, you know, secretary or the paralegal, you know, I'm the attorney. I want to be. Okay, well, so we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to uh, continue talking with Michelle about microaggressions in the workplace. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The average time a resume spends on an HR manager's desk is seven seconds, and most of them are tossed aside. Now imagine if one of those resumes belonged to Yasmin, who was living in a shelter, juggling three jobs. I had to be resilient. That's something that you can't teach. Or if that resume was from someone who worked 12-hour shifts at the recycling company with my dad, who's 72. That taught me a work ethic that I carry with me every day. We rely so much on a resume, yet it could never tell the full story of someone Growing up where I did, a lot of things could have gotten in the way of my goals. But I learned to push through, and that's what I bring to work every day. 
So maybe it's time we look beyond the resume and look to grads of life. Discover new ways to develop great talent that are so much more than what's on paper at gradsoflife.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Grads of Life and the Ad Council. If you enjoyed today's show, do this. Share us. Like us. Give us a review on your favorite podcast app. It means a lot to us, and it ensures more people tune in and raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Welcome back, everyone. We are talking with Michelle Silverthorne about microaggressions in the workplace. So I want to talk a little bit about your thoughts on specifically, you know, what can what can employers do? Let's talk about both sides of it, right? So let's talk about what employers can do to address these issues and how can employees get to a point where they are more comfortable coming forward, like ways to phrase it. So we don't look like, gee, I'm being overly sensitive, but you know, and that's a workplace culture thing, but it takes a long time to change a workplace culture. You know, honestly, though, a long time is relative. You can change a workplace culture in like a week by firing all the bad apples. You really can. Or it could take a much longer time to do it. I mean, I'm just going to say, I'm just going to be honest, right? So much of the work we don't do is we don't fire the bad apples. We say, well, you'll just have to get used to them. So the people who are feeling excluded and marginalized are the ones who have to suffer or leave while those few bad apples get to stay year in and year out. Um, but from, so when I tell people how to address microaggressions, I like to talk at it from the perspective first of what happens first, right? So let us say you say something like, um, um, oh, your English, it's so good, right? And you're talking to Korean American persons and speaking English since they could talk. And okay, so then what happens at that point? First question is, how did you know you were saying the wrong thing? Did it something, did you realize it in that moment? Did someone come tell you like two weeks later, remember when you said that? Was it the person who was standing here who said that to you? Because I will say for like 99% of those death by a thousand cuts, you never find out. No one ever tells you and you go on your life thinking your relationship with this person is so great. Now the one time, the one time sometimes it happens where they raise it with you and say, okay, well, and I'll tell you how the best way to say it is. Here's what sometimes then happens. I never said that. Come on, why would you think that? I was just joking. Come on, you know me. I wouldn't say that. Bob said that. You know Bob. Bob wouldn't say something like that. Come on, you should go apologize, right? Don't do that. <laughs> if someone comes to you and says that you hurt me or you offended me or any of that, and again, I'll go back to how I actually think they should say it later on. I want you to just say, I'm sorry. Like, you don't need to go into all the explanations of why you said it and how you did it and who did what. Just say, I'm sorry. Just apologize. That's it. Just start with that. And then after that, you can, if this person wants to continue that conversation, fine, they can do that there. But what I always suggest is that you take the time, step away, and go learn why what you did was wrong. Why is it that you called a Black woman articulate and well-spoken a wrong thing to do? Figure that out. And then go back to the person and apologize again. And then you can start sharing. Here is what I've been learning. If they want to talk to you, sometimes they're so angry they don't want to talk to you. And that's okay. Sometimes they have been so hurt that they don't want to talk to you. And that's okay. But please apologize. And then once you do the work of learning, try to continue that conversation. If you've had the chance to continue that conversation, that's awesome, right? But then after all that's done, do exactly what we just said earlier. You set the culture that says, no, we don't do that here. We don't say that here. Those aren't actions that we perform here, right? So that's from the perspective of whoever said it, like the individual person, not like the workplace. From the perspective of the person, 
Um, I always tell people, you know, because like I said, there's so many of these microaggressions, especially happen to junior people and they want to preserve a relationship, but they also want the person to know that they were hurt. And so I often just say, you know, ask them why they said it. Just say if someone says it like um, you're so articulate for a black person or just say you're so articulate. Just ask them, why do you think that? Why did you say that? Why? And then put the onus back on them to explain it. Put the onus back on them. And if you feel like you don't have the power, the ability to speak up in that moment, go get some people, go get some allies, go get some other leaders and have them talk to them about it and then see what you should do. Yeah, I love that approach. And I was just thinking self-awareness. So when you were saying apologize, it's very difficult for a lot of people to apologize. But if you think about it, what struck me when you said it was what I'm doing in that moment, what you're basically saying in that moment is to set aside your own concepts, your own feelings, your own thought that I didn't do anything wrong and acknowledge the fact that whatever it was you did or said obviously impacted this other person. Mm -hmm. So not your intent, the impact, exactly. Right. Not your intent, the impact to that and, and acknowledge sort of, you know, what that did to that person in that moment. And then, like you said, go away and, you know, think about it. And, and some people are just not self-aware. And there's not there's not self-reflection there and they don't have that capability. But in that moment, if you can just set that aside and say, OK, obviously, I've I've done something and not, you know, I'm sorry if my actions offended you. Right. Not that sort of. You kick someone and even if it was by accident, you tell them you're sorry. If you hit someone, even we train our kids to always say you're sorry, regardless of what your intention was. My daughter, like. You know, shoves my other kid, hopefully not down the stairs. She accidentally pushes my child. I'm going to tell her, I don't care if you meant to do it, you didn't mean to do it, whatever. You hurt her. So please apologize for it. And like you said, it is just so hard for so many people to just say, I'm sorry, because the automatic reaction is, well, I didn't do it. Or I didn't mean to say that. Or you took it the wrong way. And I'm like, yeah, well, I took the fact that you kicked me the wrong way. All I want you to say is I'm sorry. And then you can continue the relationship because you don't want to lose that relationship. You want to keep on mentoring this person. You want to keep on working with the person. You have to supervise this person. And just the act of apologizing opens you up to conversations that for so many people in this country, they've never had conversations on race or sexism or the experiences of those who are marginalized. If you have that opportunity to continue your learning, please take it. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I think that um, that just just that idea it, to preserve that relationship. So in etiquette, we always talk about preserving the relationship. Whether you, you don't have to like everybody you work with, you don't have to be. No one likes everybody they work with, right? Unless right. you own your own company, and then you like everybody you work with because it's just you. It's perfect. <laughs> I love me. No, <laughs> I'm great. I'm like the best for. I'm the best boss to have. The best. But I do think that uh, the idea that, um, you know, it's just that it's just that acknowledgement. And if that acknowledgement preserves that relationship and allows you to get the job done, keep the team together, build that professional relationship to a place where, you know, at least you get the job done because you got to get the job done. Mm -hmm. It's difficult for everybody that doesn't help. But I also like this mentor idea so that the second part of that was, you had said, you know, get colleagues, go, go find support. And I think that's really important um, because 
And, and let me ask you how you how what you think about this. So my feeling is that we all bring a lot of baggage to the workplace, especially around these sorts of sensitive issues, diversity issues, sexual harassment, because we have personal experiences that make up our response mechanisms. And when we bring it to the workplace, we bring all that with us. And there's a check and balance that kind of goes on. And is that kind of what you're saying is that it's good to get a check and balance, you know, go talk to someone. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah. And it's good because there's always these power dynamics, right? So, you know, you can check in with someone and say, okay, this is what was said. Um, what do you think? Now it's possible that, that person might not think there was a problem. Um, it's possible they may not realize there's a problem for a lot, often, you know, sim, like if they're in the same identity group as the person, they may not understand what racism looks like to someone who is, you know, a young, you know, Korean American female in the workplace. But having that ability to talk to someone, bounce off that idea, but also to work off that hurt. Like, I don't want to okay. underestimate how much there is a great book that Minda Hart is coming out with, which is talking about how you address racial trauma in the workplace. There is so much trauma that happens from bias and microaggressions, giving space to talk to someone to have that address that hurt. But then it also say that person is equal to that person who delivered that hurt. You don't have to take it on yourself to talk to that person. The other person can go and talk to you because that is the work of allyship right there. That's great. I love that. Well, Michelle, we are wrapping up our show and I want to know. So as we wrap it up, are there any thoughts you have, any cautionary tales, words of wisdom that you want to end the show with today for our listeners? Um, you know, I, I do a lot of speeches. I do a lot of talks. I do a lot of trainings. And I think the biggest, um, I mean, gosh, there's so many, there's so many, action, there's so many way, ways that people don't get started. So what I always tell people is to pick one way to get started, pick one action, pick one commitment, pick one promise and hold yourself accountable to it in three months, right? Because it's so easy to say that is too hard and we can't change it. But once you do one thing, it makes it a lot easier to do the next thing. And the next thing might be even harder than the first thing. And that's how you continue the work of progress. Don't just focus on how changing something overnight. Focus on the steps that you can make for progress. And that is how the work of change really happens. I love it. Thank you so much, Michelle. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us and sharing your thoughts and your insights with our listeners. I thought it was really informative. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Teresa. I'm so happy to be here. You can learn more about Michelle by visiting her website at www.michellesilverthorne.com. That's M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-S-I-L-V-E-R-T-H-O-R-N.com. You can also connect with Michelle via our website at sapphirelegal.com slash podcast. I want to also thank our listeners, my radio angels, James and the Nave at Night, our workplace perspective team extraordinaire, our engineer producer, Paul Roberts, our associate producer, Melissa DeLacy, with music provided by the very talented Stephen Versaloni. Thank you all for joining us on Workplace Perspective. And until next time, keep raising the bar. Bye.